God. Look with me, please. Third John, verse 7. I want to say chapter. There's no chapter here. Third John, verse 7 and verse 8. John writes, Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive them, or receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Now, again, to understand really what John is saying, let's go back up to verse 4 and read those verses again to, to have clarity. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Of course, John is referring to Gaius here. He says, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake, they, those he's speaking of in verse 6, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Last week we spent our time together examining verses 2 through 6 of this third epistle of John and, and of this chapter, if you will, this epistle. And as I pointed out last week, John's expressed desire for the physical well-being of Gaius, as we saw in the previous verses, uh, was based upon the spiritual well-being already demonstrated within the life of Gaius. If you look back to verse 2, he says, Beloved, speaking to Gaius, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. And I told you last week, the verb translated wish in this verse literally means to pray or pray, and the verb prosper means go well. And so John's prayer for Gaius was that all things would go well physically for Gaius as they were well with Gaius spiritually. In other words, John's prayer was that as Gaius was spiritually healthy, so John desired and prayed that God would minister to him physically in the same manner, in the same capacity. Verse 3, he goes on to say, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Last week I explained as well the importance of the testimony of Gaius regarding the truth. There were two all-important statements made about Gaius in this verse. Now, I mentioned this, but I want to briefly mention them again to you. First of all, it is that the truth is abiding or was abiding in Gaius. Notice what he says. He rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. So the truth was in Gaius. But then second, Gaius is abiding or was abiding in the truth. And then he goes on to say, even as thou walkest in the truth. So all of those who abide, or all those in whom truth abides, will continue or will abide in the truth. So if truth is in you, then you will remain in the truth. Now, to remain in the truth does not mean that we are sinless, obviously, and we're not, that's not at all the, the, what John is inferring here in the statement, but rather he's saying that because truth was in Gaius and that was testified by those of the brethren within the church, he says now that truth is in you, you also are walking in the truth. And so if truth is within us, then we walk in the truth. Not that we are perfect, not that we are sinless, not that we ever act in a manner that is not according to the truth, because obviously there are moments in which we do that. But yet we will continue in the truth. We are on a, a walk and journey in truth as believers in Christ. And so truth is in us, therefore truth is what directs us, truth is what guides us, Truth is, is, again, our foundation. It's that upon which we stand. And, of course, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. We know that uh, the spirit of truth, which is the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, he dwells within us. And so truth, of course, is of all importance here within this text. Verse 4, John goes on to say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk 
in truth. And the verb walk here infers a continuity of action. So he's already said, even as thou walkest in truth, I rejoice because the truth is in you as testified by the brethren, and even as you walk in truth. So again, truth is not something, just a testimony which others testified of Gaius, but Gaius's life was obviously testifying of the truth that was within him. And John then comes to this conclusion, as he did in the second epistle also, and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And John obviously had invested truth into Gaius, and now he rejoiced that Gaius continued in the truth in which he had been taught. Then we come to verse 5. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. John exhorted Gaius to be consistent in his desire to help others in the truth. And this included not only those he knew in the faith, but also those who might be recommended by John or another proven follower of Christ. If one's testimony among the brethren preceded him, then John instructs Gaius to receive that individual and commit himself to ministering to him. It's very important we recognize this. Throughout the scriptures, you'll find where letters of recommendation were given. Even in the epistles, some of the epistles have where recommendations are being made concerning certain individuals. And Paul might write a letter and in the, in the epistle might recommend a brother or so on. Uh, another apostle may do the same thing. And so the reality is that there were recommendations that were made, letters of recommendations, or within epistles, within a letter, a recommendation would be made concerning a certain brother or sister. And, and often it will be saying something along the lines of that you are to receive this brother who is faithful in the ministry, who's a, a helper to me in the, in the gospel, or so on and so forth. And so there was a recommendation that was given. So John is saying here specifically in verse 5 that, Beloved, Gaius, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, and so obviously, I mentioned this last week, and it's true that we as believers in Christ are to be, obviously, the, the, the live out the truth of the gospel in a world of ungodliness and a world of people who are spiritually living, or, or living in spiritual darkness and are spiritually dead. And so we are to do that. But in this particular context, John is saying that if you know of the brethren that are faithful, then you are to receive them and you are to help them along, assist them in their walk, not only walk of faith, but in their ministry of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, not only those, but strangers as well, meaning if, again, the testimony precedes them, that they are faithful to the gospel, then we should receive them. And so it's not that we have to know someone personally and know everything about them in order to assist them within their labor of of the gospel or the ministry of the gospel, but rather if there is a recommendation of them based upon those who we know are faithful in the truth, and then they recommend another who they claim, as Paul did in his epistles again, he would state that this brother receive him. And so even when you think about Philemon, the book of Philemon, if you recall with me, Onesimus having done Philemon wrong, and yet what does Paul say? Receive him as you would receive me. Paul is saying, take Onesimus in as you would receive me. He is beneficial. He is profitable. And the reason why is because he'd been born again. And Paul is testifying of that to Philemon so that Philemon knows that there's been a a, a, a spiritual transformation, redemption within the life of Onesimus. And so John is, is referring to that here, not Onesimus, of course, but referring to the truth of receiving those to whom recommendation has been given or made, that they are followers of Christ, that they are workers in the gospel, they are faithful in the ministry, and therefore we receive them because they have a testimony. This is the point. If you look back to uh, verse 6, or go forward to verse 6, you see that he says, "...which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, and whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well." So there's, there's 
the witness, of course, that John is that Gaius has been faithful in the ministry, but then he's telling them to bring them forward on their journey. And we'll look at that in just a moment. So John here in verse 5, he tells Gaius to be consistent uh, in this desire he had to help others in the truth. And this, again, included those who would, might would be recommended by John. So if one's testimony among the brethren preceded him, that he was faithful in the gospel, then John instructs Gaius to receive that individual. Now we get to verse 6, and we see he, when he states, "...which have borne witness of thy charity before the church." Whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sword, thou shalt do well. The meaning of the verb in the phrase bring forward means to send on one's way or to accompany. And so John tells Gaius that it is right for him to accompany by means of helping those who are already faithful in the ministry on their way or in their journey. So as as there are those who are on their way in the gospel ministry, in the work of the gospel, that it is a right thing. It's not only good that you do it, it is right that you do this, that you are then faithful. You shall do well, he says, after a godly sword. He's saying this is right and this is good to help others on their way within the ministry of the gospel. So as we've seen through our previous study, the emphasis of John's greeting to Gaius concerning his prayer for his well-being was not a desire to see Gaius physically prosper for the purpose of selfish consumption, but rather it was a prayer for Gaius to be physically blessed as he had been spiritually blessed, that he might continue in being a fellow helper to the truth. And it is important that we understand the context of John's statement in verse 7 as it relates to verses 5, 6, and 8. So let's read 5 through 8 again. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So here you find, if you will, the qualification. John is, is qualifying those to whom he speaks specifically to Gaius concerning his assisting them in the work in verse 7 when he says, because that for his name's sake, for Christ's name's sake, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. Now Paul had experienced these same problems in relation to some of the Gentiles to whom he ministered. Paul explained through his, in his epistles, and we'll read some of this tonight just to look at it, this problem which the Gentiles seemed seemed to have had in assisting others within the work of the gospel, even those who were believing Gentiles. Some of them were not as, as quick or as ready to assist even the Apostle Paul in his labor, even when he ministered to them. Now, not only is it important that we as the body of Christ and as Gaius is being exhorted by John. Not only is it important that we understand our place in the ministry of the gospel, but also that we understand our, our part and our place and our privilege and responsibility to assist others who are laboring in the ministry of the gospel. But also, it's of tremendous importance and significance that when one is ministering unto us the truth of the gospel or in the gospel, that we have a desire to assist them and help them in their journey along their way as they are ministering to us specifically. And so that is what John is dealing with here. He's saying that they went forth in the name of Christ for his name's sake and yet took nothing of the Gentiles. And he says, then we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So these very ones that did not receive ministry, ministering from the Gentiles to whom they ministered, he says that we should be 
very conscious to be involved and engaged in their ministry that we might help the truth. Again, verse 7, he says, because for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 9, 3 and 4, and then 11 through 14, this is what Paul writes concerning the Corinthians. He says to them, My answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Let me explain what he's saying here. When he says, those who would question Paul concerning his ministry and concerning the fact of him, of course, having necessity as a man to live and having physical needs, he, when he says, have we not the power to eat, he's actually asking, do we not have the right to eat? Do we not have the right to drink? Do we not have the right to live? Do we not have the right to the necessities of life? And that's what, what Paul is asking. Then he says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 9, if we have sown unto you spiritual things... Is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? So here Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, if if we have labored in truth to you and have fed you and have ministered to you, spiritually providing for you, is it not right that you would then care for us and provide for us physically that we might continue in this labor, that we might give ourselves to this labor? He says in verse 12, If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So what Paul is saying is this. He's saying if someone is faithful in the ministry, now remember, Paul was a tent maker, and Paul did whatever was necessary for the sake of continuing in the gospel. But the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians is it is, it is shameful for you not to invest into the work of the gospel. He says, but regardless of that, we are willing to suffer all things. We're willing to go without and to continue that the gospel would not be hindered. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 9, Paul says, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Now, when he says he robbed other churches, of course, he's not literally saying that he went in and, you know, he stole from the churches so that he might have provision. What he's saying is, I took from them, they ministered to me when you should have been the ones ministering to me. I am ministering to you, and yet instead of you investing anything in this, you are letting everyone else provide for the needs of those, to who, those who are ministering to you. And he says, this is, this is shameful, of course. He goes on to say, Well, verse 8 again, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. So Paul is here saying, I will not be a burden to you, and I will not allow you to accuse me of being a burden unto you. I will rather take nothing from you, because they weren't wanting to minister to Paul to begin with. He's saying, I will take nothing from you, that the gospel not be hindered, but somewhere provision has to come. And so those in Macedonia, which very well could have been the church at Philippi, by the way. Those in Macedonia are now ministering to Paul that he might minister to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 through 18. Paul goes on to say, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. 
For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. This is very interesting. Paul here, of course, is stating that he says, I'm coming to you a third time, and he says, I'm not coming so that I can receive something from you. I'm not interested in what you have. Paul is saying, I'm interested in you. And that's proven by Paul's ministry. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. What a statement. Paul is saying, the more I give, the more I labor, the more I invest, the more I am committed unto you and to the truth to you, he says, the less I am loved. If anybody griped and complained about Paul, you know who it was? The Corinthians. And Paul is ministering tirelessly unto them, taking nothing from them, and saying, I will not be held chargeable as though I have robbed you. I will not take anything from you, but rather others will provide for the needs that are necess- the necessities and the needs that are present that I might continue to serve, it, to serve you and to minister unto you. Verse 16, But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Won't we not in the same spirit? Won't we not in the same steps? So he's saying, those I sent to you, not only did I not take from you, but anyone I sent to minister to you, such as Titus, they didn't take anything from you either. Here you have this church that is in in an affluent society in Corinth, and yet not willing to invest at all in the work of the ministry of the gospel. And Paul says, that's okay, we'll continue on. But now listen to what John is saying. If you compare that to what John is saying, notice what he says. Go back to verse 7. John is addressing this problem regarding Gaius. John both commended and exhorted Gaius to join with others who were laboring in the gospel, especially those who did so without any help from those to whom they ministered. And this was not about the individuals and their worth. This is so important but the worth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to which they had proven faithful. If you go back to verse 7, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. What is he talking about? He's saying they carried the message of the gospel, they continued in the work of the gospel for the cause and sake of Christ, taking nothing of the Gentiles. And he says because of this, he says, verse 8 now, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Now, this is important. Notice what John says. He doesn't say we should receive such that we might help them. We should receive such that we might benefit them. What does he say? We should receive such who, if for the cause and sake of Christ, ministered even whenever it was to their own hurt physically, or they did not receive after ministering or during ministering, he says, we should receive such, and we do so that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. This isn't even about them. This is about the truth. If we are going to be involved and engaged, it's like we've been looking at with Paul in Philippians on Sunday mornings. Paul says, if Christ be preached, or if Christ is preached, I rejoice. Whether it be contention or strife or envy, he says, it doesn't matter. Now, again, Paul is not talking about the message being perverted. He's talking about the motives being perverted. The people who preached Christ had impure motives, and Paul says, that does not make a difference to me if Christ is preached. 
But if Christ is not preached, or another gospel is preached, which is not another but a perversion of the true, which Paul speaks to the Galatians concerning this, he then says, let him be accursed. So John here is saying, if there is someone who is faithful to the ministry and the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we are to receive such, we are to help them along their way, we are to minister to them, we are to minister with them, we are to accompany them, we are to do so not for their sake, but for the sake of the truth. To be a fellow helper to the truth. The verb receive means to recover or to get back. While the Gentiles did nothing to assist in the furtherance of the gospel and did not help those who were ministering to them, John exhorts Gaius to receive those who labored in the gospel. Many today have a desire to minister in the world, which is biblical. However, there are two biblical requirements which precede authentic ministry to the world. And this is so important. And we've dealt with this in the book of Romans, but we want to visit this again. Because John is saying, okay, those who are faithful in the truth then you minister to them, receive them for the sake of the truth, to be a fellow helper to the truth. And in Romans chapter 12, this is a very interesting chapter and the way that it unfolds. There are three major divisions in Romans 12 in which Paul explained the proper progression of practical Christianity or the order and basis of practical ministry. And he begins... First, with personal life in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, you know these verses, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So practical Christianity, practical ministry, is lived out from a life of practical fellowship or personal fellowship and submission to the Lord. Practical ministry, practical Christianity will manifest itself in one's personal life. Notice the sacrifice. There's a personal sacrifice here when Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Then there's personal worship, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And again, reasonable means genuine and service means worship or ministry of worship. And then personal transformation. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So here, all this is personal. And, and, and what's so important here is to recognize that Paul is stating, and we're going to follow me in this, okay? This has everything to do with what we're talking about in John's third epistle. So, so, so follow with me, track with me, and we'll come back around to that. In order for there to be true ministry that is taking place in a biblical manner within the world, First, one must be personally submitted to God. One must be personally worshiping the Lord. One must be personally being transformed by the truth to which they desire to minister to others, at least by profession. But then there's practical ministry within the church, verses 3 through 13 of Romans. In Romans 12, 13, we'll just read this one verse. Every man or part of it, every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. So when one submits his body as a living sacrifice to God daily on the altar of worship unto God and submitting themselves unto him, then and only then will he have a proper view of himself and others. So we are to, to, to not think of ourselves above others, but every man that is among you, we're commanded to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly, which will result, of course, in 
ministry. And through verses 3 through 13 of Romans 12, Paul outlines this, and he speaks of this practical ministry being manifested in church life through humility, preferring others above oneself, as we see in verse 13, through ministry, using spiritual gifts to edify others. And Paul lists the seven major categories of spiritual gifts in this text. And then hospitality, when he speaks of meeting the needs of others. So before we ever get to ministry within the world, you have personal sacrifice, personal worship of God. Then you have corporate sacrifice and corporate worship of God in submitting and edifying one another through submission to the Spirit of God. And then you find the third major division of Romans 12 in which Paul deals with practical ministry in the world in verses 14 through 21. And we'll read verses 14 and 15 and 20 and 21. He says, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Verse 20, Therefore if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul is saying that practical ministry will be manifested in one's life within the world, and there's grace that is present. Bless those who curse, acting kindly towards those who act in hatred towards you. We are to be gracious. And this is talking about to your enemies, (laughs) to those who do not love you, to those who despise you, to those who hate you. And so we're commanded that we are to act graciously towards them. Then we're told, mercy, rejoice and weep, identifying with others in both joy and sorrow, that our lives are, are we are to be demonstrating mercy, the mercy and grace of God. Then love, compassion towards others, provide for the needs of your enemy. If your, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him drink. Your enemy. So people focus on ministry in the world and how to reach the world, and we should be evangelizing without question. Our, we are the light of the world. Christ in us is that light, and he's called us to be his light and represent him, of course, his ambassadors. But we must understand, in order for this to take a proper form and be biblically progressive, as Paul outlines it, before we can ever genuinely minister within a world that is in spiritual darkness with the spiritual light of the gospel, we first must be submitted to that truth in our own lives personally, which will then manifest itself corporately within the body, which then will overflow into the world. Not just by the body corporately, but by individuals of that body and the body as a whole ministering in the world. So John here is saying, and going back to John, he is saying, Gaius, for those who've labored in the truth, minister to them. Be a fellow helper to the truth. Now, what are they doing? They're ministering the truth of the gospel, no doubt even to those who are without the gospel. And Gaius is saying, or John is telling Gaius, be a part of this as you've been. Be passionate about this. Be involved. Be intentional. Be purposeful. He's saying, assist them. Accompany them. Join with them for the sake of the truth. Fellow helpers of the truth. So here's the point. We are not just rogue agents of God out there, mavericks doing our own thing. But we are to be personally submitted to God, ministering one to another as God is calling, or John is calling Gaius to do. Now notice, what does he say about Gaius? Let's see how this unfolds. What does he say about Gaius in the first part of this epistle? We've read it this evening. Look back. I'm sorry? 
well, he does speak of him being well-beloved, but then he says this. He says in verse 2 that he wished he would prosper and be in health even as his soul prospereth. I greatly rejoice when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Is that not personal? Gaius is personally submitted to the Lord. He is personally worshiping God through submission to God. He is living in the truth, which is abiding in him. But then look at what is said. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and strangers. He's encouraging me, exhorting me here, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sword, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. So here, Gaius himself is walking in truth, and as one who is now what is happening? He's now ministering to other fellow helpers or other helpers in the truth, and he becomes a fellow helper to the truth. But what are the fellow helpers to the truth doing? They are ministering the gospel to a world of unbelievers. Are you seeing this? So Gaius, back to Romans 12, Gaius is personally presenting his body a living sacrifice unto the Lord. In doing so, he is edifying the body of Christ as they bear witness of his, of his charity among and within the church and of those who are also laborers in the ministry as he is edifying them through the truth and through ministry with them, which ultimately is reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even those who are in unbelief outside of this body of believers and outside even the reach of this particular body of believers themselves. What we see is that Gaius, the command for Gaius to be fellow helpers is not like, okay, Gaius, this is just your simple part and this is all you do. No, listen, Gaius himself had a responsibility to walk and live in the truth and also to be a fellow helper to others in the truth, which ultimately would result as well in evangelizing the gospel, evangelizing the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of truth. So we find this progression as Paul lists it is somewhat practically demonstrated. And even by those to whom Gaius helps, because watch this. They are in need of provision, hence John is exhorting Gaius to be involved in the ministry as he has done and continue to be. But yet they minister to a people that won't invest it all into them and their work, though they minister to them the truth of the gospel. Does that not Remind you of what we just referenced in Romans 12? Even those who would take advantage of you, we are to be submitted to the Lord in declaring the gospel unto them and being gracious and merciful unto them and compassionate unto them as Christ would live in us. As Gaius, we should be faithful as fellow helpers to the truth and we are to receive and minister to others for the sake of the gospel. It is a privilege to be called by God to be a fellow helper to the truth. And all those who are walking in truth will not only possess a desire to walk in truth themselves, themselves, but will also have a commitment to the truth. Again, this wasn't about Gaius simply helping someone else out. This is about Gaius being a fellow helper to the truth. We have a tendency, if we like someone, then we want to, of course, help them along the way. And that's human nature. 
what we should be passionate about, as John is exhorting Gaius, is the truth. <laughs> if there are people genuinely laboring in the truth, why would we not want to invest and be involved in that and be a ministry of help to them? Which also means we are being submissive unto the Lord personally. We are ministering together as a body corporately. And ultimately, we are to evangelize the world with the truth of the gospel, as John outlines, or as Paul outlines in Romans chapter 12, and which was the result of what was taking place here in John's third epistle as he exhorts Gaius. God has called us to be fellow helpers to the truth. We are to be those who would assist, those who accompany, those who join alongside, those who, if you will, help provide for the needs. This is a privilege. It is a, a joy to do so. But we ought to be invested not in the people. We ought to be invested in the truth. And therefore, those who are teaching and proclaiming truth, we help them as they live in the truth and as we live in the truth. We are fellow helpers to the truth. What a great what a great privilege that is, just to be a part of what God is doing. And look how God works this, and this is a beautiful thing he's done. God, think about Paul, for instance. There were those who helped Paul along his journey, and Scripture testifies to this. And Paul, God used Paul to reach people those people would have never reached, but yet they had the privilege of being a part of Paul's ministry and God using Paul to reach those people. Therefore, God used them in that work. What a privilege that is. And while we, again, are limited, as Paul points out, as I pointed out through our study of Philippians, and as we've seen through some of the writings of Paul, while, while Paul was imprisoned and Paul was hindered and limited in his ability, Paul was absolutely convinced that the gospel was not limited or hindered at all. And I confess to you tonight, we are, we are limited. We're limited people. I'm one man, you're, you're one individual. And we are limited in resources, we are limited in our abilities, we are limited in how God has gifted us. We are just limited. That's all there is to it. But the truth is not limited. And God has allowed us to be a part, have a part, and play a part, be a part in the truth, and in the propagation of the truth. And that's a joy, and that's a privilege. So may we be faithful as John is exhorting Gaius, may we be faithful to be fellow helpers to the truth.